Disclaimer, the following anime has never been released here in America commercially, so you're gonna have to watch this one by other means. Should this get a release here in the US, it is your job as an anime fan to buy the DVDs, stream it legally, and support the US anime industry when you can. And now, on with the show. This is the Otaku Nate Show, episode 33, Zambot 3, The Tamino Effect. What is up, anime fans? Otaku Nate here with another installment of the Otaku Nate Show, the anime podcast where we talk about anime that we want to talk about. And this week, I am joined by a very special guest. Uh, hello, um, I'm Ethan Hawker, sometimes going online by the name uh, Sundown underscore McMoon, or just Sundown McMoon. Good to have you on, Ethan. We've, uh, we uh, would often chat with each other on Skype during my college days, and we haven't spoken in a while. And, uh, well, I'll let you plug your stuff, but uh, Ethan, could you tell me about yourself? Yeah. Yeah, I'm more than happy to. Um, uh, as uh, has, was alluded to, me and Nate uh, go way back from when um, we were both younger people uh, by a considerable margin. Golly, back when I was in high school, I want to say. I think I knew I knew you through a, a group of mutual friends, through like anime collectors and that sort of thing. Um, and, and that is me. I, I collect anime. I have far too much of it right now. Um, but amongst other things, um, I, I draw, I illustrate from time to time. Um, I write film reviews for the website Zeke Film. I've not written one in far too long. I will do one soon, I promise. I say this on literally every every podcast I appear on. Uh, but the main thing I do is, um, I with a group of friends, I do a show called uh, Bomb Squad Movie Night on uh, our channel, where I'm not on every episode. Usually whenever we're discussing an animated film, or um, uh, anime in particular, obviously, I'm the one either... Uh, a main guest or a host, uh, and we chat um, in sort of roundtable format. It's it's sort of like a red letter media thing, closer to like uh, like more I don't know best of best of the worst than a traditional podcast format kind of thing. There's more visual elements involved in it, like motion graphics editing and that sort of thing. Uh, the part of our wonderful editor Austin. So I highly recommend uh, any any listeners check that out if they are interested in discussions of anime in particular. We have some really good episodes on uh, Macross. Do you remember Love? which is a favorite Digimon the movie, uh, which is near and dear to my heart, despite being uh, a weird sort of uh, adaptation. Uh, and I, uh, Perfect Blue, that's one I don't usually plug, but one I'm really happy with how it came out. Thank you for that, Ethan. And together, we are going to be talking about Zambot 3, released in 1977 by Studio Sunrise. The series was directed and, I would say, mostly written... By Yoshiyuki Tomino. Now, for most casual anime fans who only know the name Yoshiyuki Tomino from Gundam, you ask them who Yoshiyuki Tomino is, they'll always say, Oh, Yoshiyuki Tomino, he's the guy who made Gundam, and they probably won't be able to tell you what else he did. But, uh, 
for us Mecha fans, he's kind of a god amongst men. I mean, obviously, if Go... If Mitsuteru Yokoyama was the man who created the giant robot genre, and Gonagai was the prodigal son who pioneered it, Tomino, I would say, is the one who kind of took it to the next level, but would also take it and then go on to create something entirely new with Gundam, but throughout the 80s would go on to sort of put his own unique spin on robot shows, both super and real. Would you say that's an accurate description of Tomino? Oh, no, absolutely. Yeah, I think he's a huge pioneering force. Um, he's, I mean, he immediately, right after Gundam, goes in with Ideon and sort of creates a super robot show that exists in a very real robot sort of space that he establishes in Mobile Suit Gundam. And then following on that, he makes a, we a Western comedy show. Um, and obviously, you know, the new anime, Century Declaration, is going to change things uh, dramatically for the state of, you know, fan culture and how we approach these things as works and leading to the whole otaku boom. I mean, yeah. And that's partially Yamato. Uh, credit where credit is due. But uh, Tomino is hugely responsible for that. But of course, this is 77 two years before Tomino would pretty much rewrite the whole genre with Gundam. But prior to Zambot 3, what was Tomino doing before he worked on Gundam? Yeah, for the longest time, uh, Tomino, when he very initially started off, was a, a production assistant at, uh, at Mushi Pro, um, before finally getting an episode director position, which was very rare uh, for a PA at Mushi Pro. Uh, otherwise, anybody who could direct episodes was an animator, uh, and the thing is, Yoshiyuki Tomino uh, was a good artist. Uh, despite everything he says about himself, he, he could draw. Um, uh, so he became a storyboard artist and episode director on uh, a bunch of episodes of Astro Boy. He's, the I think, the single most credited on, on the original Adam. But time wears on, and eventually uh, Mushi Pro goes kaput, and he moves on to uh, Greener Pastures, uh, Greener Gables, even, haha. Uh, World Masterpiece Theater, including working with Hayao Miyazaki, of course, as was mentioned on that wonderful Future Boy Conan episode, and some work with uh, Tatsunoko Pro, of course, uh, doing stuff like uh, Kashan and Palimar. But uh, he only directs uh, two series in sort of this intermediary period, uh, Triton of the Sea, uh, which is an adaptation of a uh, Tezuka manga series from 73, and uh, which is, differs from the source material considerably and has a, has a very Tomino sort of bummer ending. Um, and uh, Yusha Raidin, Brave Raidin, in 1975, which is sort of a mystical spin on the traditional uh, uh, super robot stuff pioneered by uh, Gonagai, uh, before uh, finally he is approached by Sunrise, which was known only as uh, Sueisha when they worked on Raidin, sort of on a contract basis, but they wanted to move into making their own animation productions, um, and their very first real project was 1977's Zambot 3, and uh, Tomino, who they previously worked with on writing, was approached to helm this project. And that's sort of where we are now. So what is Zambot 3 about? Well, Zambot 3 is a, is a few things. Um, the, uh, the producers, what they brought to it was they wanted the show to be about uh, a family of Mecha pilots, centering around sort of a familial unit as the individual pilots and uh, how that um, distinguishes it from stuff like Get a Robo and that sort of thing, where it's, you know, sort of disparate figures gathering together to pilot these machines. Um, what Tomino introduced that made Zambot 3 so special was uh, the concept of sort of collateral damage, 
he didn't really work with that too much in uh, writing. He was too busy pioneering uh, Bichon and Sexy Men uh, as villains. But with Zambot 3, the main conceit, uh, sort of, the, the appeal of it um, is, is that it's very much entrenched in, uh, like, it is a super robot show of the day by most aesthetic grounds and music, everything. When the robot smashes up a city, it stays smashed up. And uh, people hate the mecha pilots, the guys fighting the, the big villains of the show, for it um, and explores a lot of really engaging concepts as a result sort of the plight of refugees the the horrors of war in in myriad ways you know child soldiery vis-a-vis you know stuff he would later move explore in gundam and there, there's going to be a lot of that discussing i'm sure stuff tomio will explore later in gundam but uh yeah it's just sort of this this vehicle for kind of advancing the super robot uh, genre at least and exploring more grounded ideas and we will get to discuss that when we get to the prime time discussion zambot 3 to me as i watched it i would say that it's sort of the start of something not necessarily the birth of a whole new subgenre like what would succeed it but more or less this is tomino building the foundations of darker robot anime real or super if i could compare it to something else and this came out 27 years later it sort of reminds me of my hime in that regard because my hime it was sort of the first magical girl show that i don't want to say it rewrote the rule book on how to make a magical girl show but it was a more unorthodox magical girl series the girls didn't transform but instead summoned mythical creatures to fight with them, a la Stans and JoJo, and it had a more overtly dark overtone, specifically in the second half of the series. Before we get into, like, the detailed discussion going through all the categories, where did you first hear of Zambot 3, and when you first watched it, what were your initial impressions? So, uh, when I first heard about Zambot 3, it was when I was first really getting into watching fan-subtitled anime. And I'd, I'd sort of known it uh, by reputation as a show that Tomino had worked on. And I, I was sort of late to the party on the original Mobile Suit Gundam, if I'm being perfectly honest, um, because it had an official release. And I had this weird sort of policy, I suppose, whereby I would say, well, that did have an official release at some point, the anime legend sets were long out of print. So I, I said, I'll, I'll watch this later. Like, I'll get a copy of the official release, or it's going to get re-released at some point, and that'll be the ideal way to watch it. Um, so I started investigating Tomino's other works, uh, stuff that I figured at, at this point, you know, circa 2012, would never get licensed in the States, like uh, Ideon and, and Zabungle. Uh, but the first show I really watched in that was uh, Zambot 3, um, sort of based on that, that sales pitch of uh, Super Robots, but... Uh, they do collateral damage, uh, and it's uh, a bit more sad. And this this was after I'd, I'd first seen Combatler V, and I was vague, you know familiar with Mazinger, that sort of thing. So I had I had sort of a reference point uh, for what what a lot of traditional '70s sort of super robot animation was going into it. My my initial impressions were um, getting into it. It's it's a little slow to really engage with that, and you don't really get it quite so much in the first couple episodes. Um, by episode five, I think, uh, which is also the first episode with animation by Yoshinori Kanada, I think that's what it really hooks you in, because it's uh, otherwise, you know, a, a bit uglier, <laughs> barring those Kanada episodes, uh, than its contemporaries in a lot of respects, just because they're working with a smaller budget and everything, and 
and um, the Zambots itself, uh, the the robot isn't super well suited to animation because it's a big chunky thing that's designed to be turned into a toy. Um, unlike Rydeen, which is all, I mean, which was also designed to be a toy, but it was designed by a better toy company. It was all smooth. I, I really, I got into it, and it was sort of a perfect thing, just watching an episode a day, uh, taking it at its own pace. Uh, then you get into those last episode 16 onwards, the human bomb arc, and particularly the, the final three episodes, and I was over the moon. After this revisit, I, I'm uncertain if I would still say that. There was a pretty significant amount of time where I would say this is my favorite Tomino show. I, I really love it, just warts and all, just because, you know, it's something that none of its contemporaries would have tried uh really you know circa 1977 like there there were good mecha shows on at the time like uh nagahama was doing great work uh with uh, his early entries in the robot romance trilogy of combatler and i believe voltez was on at the same time as zambot and they're exploring a lot of spaces but but nothing like what zambot pulls <laughs> um which is just uh to this day still incredibly shocking my initial impression and i heard about this on podcasts and like in various reviews and what have you people often said that zambot 3 it was where tomino got his start and i knew nothing of it other than people said it's the precursor to gundam which to me is sort of like saying that evangelion was the first deconstruction of mecha somewhat true but ultimately misguided to me I wanted to know more about it, especially because I was actually spoiled. I didn't see the clips of the ending, but I was made aware of the human bomb arc and a couple of other things within the show. And so I said, you know what? I like super robots. I like watching and learning about the history of the medium that I enjoy the most. I'm going to watch Zambot 3 and review it for the show. I was expecting it to be dark. And to its credit, it does get dark, especially in the back end. But the uh, initial episodes of Zambot 3 are kind of, um... Oh boy, it's... To put it nicely, it's a little all over the place in its initial episodes. I was expecting it to go full dark right away, but it doesn't really get dark until like 7 or 8 episodes in. Yeah, I would I would say that is correct. Um for for me it's going to be um still still episode 5. That's when you first start honing in on the refugees, but I don't yeah, it doesn't really super commit to it um until uh, a little bit later on when it starts focusing in a bit more on the the refugees internal lives. Um I think that's that's a fair assessment and it, you know, it's a Tobino show. It sometimes like sometimes they they drop you right in and then they just take a while to figure out what the hell's going on i mean that's mobile suit gundam is one of the once shows of his that like really uh defies that um i think i think it has such a really strong first episode um but like stuff like dunbine and ideon they, they do take a while to sort of gather themselves together and i i would argue that zambot is similarly sort of guilty of that it definitely is but i wouldn't say that it hurts the show as i don't think it's tomino trying to figure it out but this type of robot show the darker sort of robot anime trying to figure out what it wants to do and as always when we break things down i start with the animation and um oh boy I have a high tolerance for animation from the 70s. I like the grittier aesthetic, but I also like the really clean stuff from Nippon Animation. But 
there's something that I cannot deny about Zambot 3. The show is, um, it does not look good. And I don't just say that because, oh, it looks dated or what have you. I mean, the animation doesn't look good by the standards of 1977. And you touched on this earlier, but they were dealing with a much lower budget. Compare this to some of the stuff that Tatsunoko is putting out at the time. I can go and watch Gotcha Man, the Time Bokan series, Kashan, and deal with those just fine, but Zambot 3's animation is really messy at points. Yeah, I think that's absolutely fair, and it's frequently not even in a super appealing kind of way. Um, I, I think it gets by because uh, oftentimes... Um, just on account of, of Tomino's good, he's generally pretty, pretty darn good at staging and doing layouts. He, he's, you know, he storyboarded several episodes of this show as well under his, uh, storyboarding alias, uh, Minoru Yokitani. There are some episodes which look exceptional, and, uh, that, that is largely the contribution of, uh, Yoshinori Kanada, uh, the great animator of of countless robots, sort of the pioneer of Sakuga, quote-unquote, uh, such as it were. And there, there are ways, you, there are people who might quibble about that, and, and understandably so, there's so much to quibble about with Japanese animation, but um, I, I will still stand by um, uh, Kanada's episodes uh, generally looking really, really exceptional, particularly episode 22. I'm not the sort of person who goes out there and looks for an animator who animated a specific scene, but, like, the scenes that are better animated do stand out. But then you get moments where there are people running away from the collateral damage that is caused by these <laughs> robot fights. And it's, like, the same three people running on screen in a loop. And that really takes me out of the moment. Yeah, yeah, there are some shots that are Trey, like, Studio Knack, almost. Um... Oh, God, you went there. Uh, just a few. Again, like, the, the Kanada stuff is, um, like, you can tell he anim like he animated on episode because they had so few key animators, he basically animates the entire episode. Um, and he has those, you know, thick, bold outlines and the poses where everyone's always, their arms are always jutting out. Uh, like, like, it is particularly jarring when juxtaposed with the rest of the show's animation, aside from, like, really, like, the very final episode looks quite good despite not having uh, Kanada's contributions. But it is just so jarring when you get a Kanada episode, because they look so good and, like, modern. Because, uh, you know, uh, like, Trigger, Yo Yoshinari and, and co. Are, are pulling from heavy influence from Kanada. Um, but then you go from a Kanada episode, it just sort of casts it in a starker light, when it uh, doesn't look quite as polished. Again, I... I'm a bit more forgiving about it than others. Um, I, I like a lot of the design work on display is um, at times quite quaint, uh, but I'm, I'm such a huge fan of stuff like the Zambo Aces design. Um, the Zambot 3, maybe not quite so much, but the show clearly likes the Zambo, Zambo Ace a bit more than it likes Zambot 3, I, th I think. Well, before we get to the robot itself, mm. there's one person that I do want to talk about who also worked on this show. Kind of got his start here. I think, pretty sure that he did stuff earlier, but... That is, of course, the man we know as Yaz, Yoshikazu Yasuhiko. He was the one in charge of the character designs, and if you cross-reference his designs in Zambot 3 with what he would do with Gundam, these are 100% his designs. You would not mistake them for anyone else's. Oh yeah, ab absolutely. I think um, they are 100% Yaz designs. I mean, 
uh, Keiko really looks like um, an older uh, Kika from from Gundam IMO. You really see in uh, uh, Uchuta, you see uh, very much uh, ka, proto sort of Kai. Um, ka- maybe maybe just even a smidge of uh, Kai Shiden. Uh, hi- yeah, yeah, a smidge of Hayato too, just in sort of those characters being mashed together. And of course, they're the tank guys. But yeah, no, they, these are absolutely. It's a, such a wonderful variety of body types too. Um, I do appreciate that uh, Hanae uh, Kape's mother is sort of a heavy set woman, and that's not really poked fun at. That is a nice addition, uh, particularly in a space where, uh, as as time goes on, in Tomino shows broadly, um, in the eighties particular, uh, they go for a very sort of like I don't know, quote unquote, attractive aesthetic, or like more traditional, and you get less, fewer and fewer of those very body types as he starts uh, working more with uh, Kogowa and um, uh, Kitazume. I was gonna say Ichitaro, uh, the the hoss of the group, shall we call him. He's very much a proto-Ryu-Hose from Gundam as well. That's the other one that came to mind when I look at all these designs back-to-back. Mm, I, I like it, too. He's almost like like a, a little bit of a uh, little bit of bright with his uh, beady uh, Yaz eyes, um, but with, like, Ryo, Ryu's build, which is, which is a delightful sort of combination. The aesthetics of their mecha pilot outfits, though, it seems like Tomino is trying to go for something out of the Time Bokan series, the, specifically the main Time Bokan series itself, especially with the helmets and their insect antennae. Yeah, I think that's uh, completely fair. That That is probably, you see him pulling a little bit from from his time at, at Tatsunoko. I'm, I'm wondering if that is, is partially what's informing the aesthetic here. Based on the original pitch, I suppose, um, before Tomino sort of Tominoed it, uh, it does seem like it was going to be like skewing younger. So I wonder if that is part of why they went for a more sort of quote-unquote uh, juvenile uh, aesthetic for the suit design. Compared to the more tokusatsu-inspired designs of Nagahama's robot romance heroes in Combattler V and Voltus V, the latter of which came out the same year as Zambot. Yeah, absolutely. I do think, um, sort of on the subject of suits, but I'm this is this is conjecture. But the uh, the stand-ins, the military boys who uh, pilot the uh, various Zam units uh, and completely bork it uh, later in the show. I'm I'm ninety percent sure they're poking fun at, at an old show that Yaz worked on in the I want to say late sixties, early seventies, uh, called Zero Tester. Um, that's sort of well well regarded amongst people who are interested in like early mechanical animation and that sort of thing because uh, they have those similar sort of orange suits and headpieces um i i don't know if that's either, either poking fun at or nodding back to that show um but i i just noticed that and wanted to put that into the ether uh that i think that's a thing i'm looking at the uh artwork for the show right now i wouldn't be able to tell but one of the pilots though he's got some sweet sweet eyebrows man those are golgo 13 caliber eyebrows yeah extremely powerful early gekiga brows on the subject of robots though we got to talk about the zambot itself and it's a cool robot it is a combiner robot a three-way combiner but not like getter robo where you have three jet planes that smash together to make a robot you have what is a core robot, and then two other machines that are piloted that link up with it. The Zambase, which is a jet, and the Zambol, which is a tank, which ultimately combine to make the titular Zambot 3. 
Yeah, I think these are, um, I, I almost jokingly want to say the Zambol, which is uh, the uh, the G Fighter, or the its tank mode, um, which might also be called the G Fighter. Uh, but it's it is that particular robot. Basically, uh, like if you actually compare them side by side, they're extremely similar looking. But I do like that. Yeah, again, um, I think you put more of a fine point on it than I've I've really noticed. But it does have kind of that uh, almost core fighter e quality where they're uh, two parts merging around this center. That that is sort of interesting. I would assume that some brave robot series would do this because in Gal Gygar, you've got the Gygar, which is the core robot. And then you've got the three Gao machines that combine to make its final form Gao Gygar, the Drill Gao, Stealth Gao, and Liner Gao. To use a more 2000s reference, the Gravion from, well, Gravion worked the same way, only in this case you have the Core Robot, the Grand Kaiser, and four other machines that combined with it to make the Grand Gravion. Yeah, it is sort of um, a more interesting way to do a combiner uh, than, you know, the um, traditional sort of, like, like the Getter style where they all just slam together, um, or the more Sentai-influenced uh, stuff that Nagahama was doing. Not knocking that at all, really. Um, it's just a little bit different, uh, which is nice. Uh, I can't really think of a lot of its peers that attempted something similar. You do mention, though, that Zambo Ace, the core robot, we shall call it, does get a lot more love from the animators than Zambot 3 itself, probably because it was a lot easier for them to animate because it has more humanoid movements to it than the much chunkier, big gestalt of Zambot 3. I will say, though, there's some little quirks about it that I love. Like, I love how Zambo Ace's cockpits are in its feet. Yeah, it is, it is an unusual. It doesn't really come up. I mean, aside from ease of access, I suppose. Um, but, like, you would think it would be extremely disorienting uh, to be stuck in the feet of uh, that particular machine. But I, I definitely agree with the sentiment vis-a-vis um, -vis its sort of humanoid qualities. Uh, it moves a bit more appealingly uh, when it is animated. And I feel like um, there is, is less of a, like, sort of lubing uh, threat from the advertisers with Zambo Ace uh, to keep it on model and looking more, uh, quote-unquote, cool. I think that also offers a certain amount of freedom. Plus, he has a gun! And uh, that was something that didn't really happen with uh, big robots of the time, that they would have a separate sort of, like, firearm like that, which was pretty keen. I was about to say, I absolutely love Zambo Ace's gun. This Zambo thing... Magnum. This thing that has a billion different attachments to it. This thing has so many different configurations. Even Charles Bronson would look at it and say, Hey kid, you're going a little bit too far there. Yeah, it does feel uh, kind of very toyetic. Uh, you you do kind of have to feel bad for um, Uchuta and Keiko, uh, who in this show... They they do really fill sort of a like a support role. They are they are very much the gun cannon and gun tank to the uh, Zambird slash Zambo Aces Gundam. The Zambo though, even though this is before it, it you kind of hit the nail on the head. It looks like the core fighter and the gun tank had a baby. Very much so. It always bothers me that it doesn't turn into a robot, too. Uh, when I was first watching the show, I kept thinking that the other two Zam units would turn into a robot. And the thing that really made me think that was the Zamble has hands. It has big meat hooks right there. Why does it turn? You could have sold a toy of that. 
big meaty claws it's got. I and I just love how because it has a rocket punch. Just to avoid a lawsuit from Gona Guy, its rocket punch is called the Arm Punch. That is a good bit. Tomino is known for his rather silly names, which, in his own words, he names his characters such ridiculous things like Shot Weapon, Marbit Finger Hat, Mary Bell Gadget, and Burn Burnings, because the network executives don't care. Because yeah. they said, like, all they see is just people piloting robots and fighting them. They don't care what the robots are called or what the characters are named. So I'm just going to name them whatever the hell I want. Absolutely. There's not a ton of, of extreme Tomino name uh, in uh, Zambot, at least as far as the, the human characters go. He has, a, he has a lot of fun with the villains. Oh, yeah. We'll, we'll, get, we'll get to the villains. In its combined form, though, Zambot 3 has... Uh, Quite the arsenal. Does it still use its gun? No, the Zambo Magnum is not included in the um, standard arsenal of uh, the eponymous Zambot 3, but it has its own wide selection of uh, armament. Bummer. Because it trades its gun for a pair of Psy called the Zambot Grap. Don't ask me where that comes from. That can also transform into a lance called the Zambot Blow and the big sword, the Zambot Cutter. And I don't know how any of this works. Obviously, it's super robot. You're not supposed to ask questions about that. But I just love how the people or Tomino probably just went, it's not enough for this robot to have a sword. I want this robot to have as many bladed weapons as possible. But how can we do this without making it look ridiculous? I know! Let's have the weapons combined in ways that are completely nonsensical! Yeah, they kind of just, like, have them do a smear and they smash them together or whatever. The, all the all the, the getter DNA of the getters just slamming together went specifically into uh, Zambot's bladed arsenal here. It also has the Zambot Busters, which I can only describe as being exploding shuriken that launch from its shins. Yes, no, uh, absolutely, because you have to have some sort of missile weapon for the toys, don't you? And, of course, it's big finisher, the Zambot Moon Attack. This is basically just Sailor Moon's Moon Tiara action, but with robots. Oh my god, I never made that connection, but it totally is. <laughs> I really like that. It does a common Rider dab, and then launches a magical beam from its moon crest on its head and just throws it right at the robot. I would not be surprised if Naoko Takeuchi took that from this show and put it on Sailor Moon. I, I wouldn't be shocked. Um, that, that would be a fun coincidence. Certainly, or not a coincidence, but a fun nod to a, f a fairly obscure show, but it seems you know completely within the realm of possibility particularly out of that after that retrospective sort of significance after uh tomino hit it big while i wouldn't say it's one of my favorite super robots of all time it has plenty of coolness to it but compared to some of its contemporaries of course getter robo is the big one combatler vn voltus i don't really think it could hang with the big boys it's better than something like Gakin or Gawopper, but not on the level of the ones I just mentioned. 
Yeah, there is a sense, particularly of, like compared to Combatler or Voltus. Um, while I'm, I, I admit I'm not like the biggest fan of those designs. I'm not. I like I like them, but I'm not completely over the moon. They they do have a certain simplicity to them, um, and like the the proportions are a lot more kind of immediately satisfying. Uh, particularly in animation, I think Zambot 3's uh, head is just a little bit too small for the rest of its body. It needs uh, bigger hands and bigger legs proportionally to everything. Um, and it's it's at times just a bit over-designed, which is, of course, especially problematic when, you know, you're working with a skeleton crew on your robot anime. I get the feeling that Tomino and the staff looked to both Combatler and Voltus for inspiration, especially when you look at the colors, the proportions, the head shape. Once you notice it, you will never not notice it. Yeah, and that's interesting too, because the the show at its very initial stages began life as um, a warring states period sort of robot show. Is similar, it is you know one of two twenty three episode robot anime series that were initially shows about uh, Mecha in uh, Japan's warring states period, uh, sharing that honor with uh, the Super Dimension Cavalry Southern Cross of all things. If you want a particularly obscure piece of trivia, um, and it sort of very much feels like they're taking on like the Combatler look or the Volta's look and, and adding a little bit of a samurai spin to it. Um, that, that, that is a little unique for the time. I think we've been so thoroughly uh, drowned in samurai-looking robots uh, post-Gundam uh, that, that the novelty is, is well and truly worn off. But at the time, it, it would have stood out a bit more. Uh, I, will, I will give it that. I never made the connection of so many mecha anime having that samurai look to them, but... <sighs> Now every time I look at, like, a Sunrise robot that has that style head, I will never, ever not notice it. Thank you for that, Ethan. No trouble. Uh, it's, a, like, there's elements of, of Zambot that sort of offset it, but, like, with Daitarn, with its uh, sort of its own sort of V-fin, um, Zambot's in particular is based off a particular uh, Japanese historical figure whose name obviously escapes me. But, um, yeah, that, that was sort of the, the genesis of this, and, and it is something that crops up in a lot of... A lot of sunrise shows, a lot of early 80s mecha anime in general, Goshogun and Baldios uh, similarly sort of do the, the big robot samurai look. Do we have any other comments about the animation? Because I think I've said my part. Not a ton. There are some nice flourishes of like use of color and limited palettes uh, to kind of let the animation shine a little bit more at times um, or to you know put really less pressure on the colorists. Uh, Tomino was good about that in general. Um, I, I speak to, he's n notoriously sort of well-known for how, in the industry, how good he is at recycling bank shots in particular, beyond, you know, the obvious of, like, the robot super, like, special attacks and all that. I really like when, later in the show, when he's able to sort of create a recap episode from recycled mecha boosts in a creative and uh, fairly inventive way. Uh, he's good at doing, like, sort of uh, innocuous kind of shots, not just the money stuff. Uh, reusing those in an economical way. And that's something he picked up all the way back uh, during his time as a PA on uh, Astro Boy. He was good at cataloging um, like the the various bank cells and that sort of thing. And I think that combined with uh, his storyboarding prowess and stuff like... Like, I love the sh the really the final shot of the show when it just it turns all to like stark white outlines of Capet's face as he looks into the sun. Uh, and then it, uh, they just boost the lights... Um, to the point where it consumes the line art um, and then credits. And th there are a few interesting tricks with like coloring and that sort of thing. That That's maybe more in the realm of visual design than strictly animation. Um, but there are some neat flourishes. 
uh, here that are clearly sort of Tomino experimenting. Um, and he he does a lot more like extremely cool and interesting stuff with um, Yaz doing animation direction and whatnot on uh, Mobile Suit Gundam famously has a lot of really cool, interesting stuff with color. And you see a little bit of that here in Zambot 3. We didn't really talk about the monsters, though. The, uh, the mecha boosts. Do you have any thoughts about them? I think they're they're mostly forgettable. The the real exceptions for me are uh, Tracid, uh, which tra- Tracid is mostly because Tracid is uh, from a Kanada episode. And the thing to know about Kanada is that he kind of Tomino didn't love Kanada because uh, Kanada kind of would take his storyboards and do whatever he wanted because um, he was he was a superstar animator. He was extremely good and he had every right to do what he wanted to do, <laughs> frankly. Um, but he would kind of make, take liberties with the mechanical design and that sort of thing. Tracid is uh, the the one that's made of tanks. Um, the the mecha that is nothing but tanks. Oops, all tanks. And uh, the other two mecha boosts that I think are really good and cool are um, the incredibly named Death Scythe. Uh, not Death Scythe. Every time, every time I've always got Gundam on the brain. Uh, Death Cane and Helldyne from the last two episodes. I think they're just really like good designs uh, on a lot of levels like they're relatively simple you know just color contrast with the red and blue but they're just very effective they animate really well and i just think they're really neat the idea of these knights these uh, giant robot knights um, is really keen but otherwise yeah kind of forgettable yeah they're pretty basic the only one that i really remember was that big ghost looking thing that could reflect all attacks in that one episode yeah, yeah. Why don't we bring back the thing that's made of the material that reflects all attacks? Um, that's just just another super robot thing. It's just like the end of Yamato, where it's like, we made a barrier that reflects everything, and then we forget about it by the time Yamato 2 rolls around. So that pretty much does it for the animation. Let's move on to the soundtrack. And they got a pretty prolific composer to do the soundtrack for this, and that is Takeo Watanabe. And this guy was incredibly prolific all throughout the 70s. Just to give you a list of stuff that he did the music for, he did the music on Star of the Giants, Attack Number 1, Heidi Girl of the Alps, and plenty of other world masterpiece theater shows, Nobody's Boy Remy, Candy Candy, Lone Wolf and Cub. He did the Toei Trinity of Majoko Meguchan, Majoko Tickle, and cutie honey and he also wrote the theme song to that one i would say that i like the soundtrack to zambot 3 it wasn't the best that i've heard but it's definitely an enjoyable little ost yeah i think it's not like you know it's not exceptionally remarkable it's good at setting a mood i think um in particular uh sort of those ominous tracks um it has a, a slightly more distinctive sound than some of its contemporaries, um, but I, I feel like we've we haven't quite reached that point in uh, anime where the second Gundam soundtrack album and that sort of thing are going to really push like soundtrack sales and and you you don't have something like a gallant char in here, you know. But it's still good, I think, in service of the material. It's just unlike you know some later uh, Tomino series soundtracks. It's probably not something you're going to listen to re- recreationally. It does its job, and that's all you can ask for a soundtrack like this. Although my favorite tracks on this album is somebody who's playing on there is going absolutely insane with the Guiro. Mm-hmm. 
If you don't know what a guiro is, a guiro is an instrument that is of South American origin. If you listen to a lot of salsa, samba, it's also used in ska and reggae tracks as well. It's that little ribbed instrument that you play rubbing a drumstick up and down it that goes If you've ever listened to the Guns N' Roses track Anything Goes, that has a guiro on it. Yeah, thank you for pointing that out, because I kept wanting to say that thing, that thing, what makes that particular sort of very distinct noise, and I was un actually just unsure of the instrument, but yeah, that is used heavily uh, throughout, and I, and I think fairly effectively. Um, the, it always brings to mind um, the heavy use of that um, like high-tension wire uh, that's used heavily in the soundtracks for like Zeta Gundam and Char's Counterattack, or uh, the use of steel drums in, in Zabungle's soundtrack. There's that like one really prominent, sort of very unique instrument that crops up in a lot of these uh, Tomino show soundtracks. Well, now you know. Even if Zambot 3 may not have the best soundtrack, it is, if nothing else, memorable. Which is more than what I can say for some of the other stuff that I've reviewed. Compared to some of the other 70s soundtracks, I liked it more than Kashan's soundtrack. Not as good as Future Boy Conan's, though. Yeah, I think that's fair. Again, it's it's, it's very much a workman's kind of stuff. Future Boy Conan is, is pastoral, but again, a bit more pleasant to kind of listen to on its own time. That's how you should always measure an anime soundtrack. Would you listen to this in your car, or working out, or going for a walk, etc.? Zambot 3's I can just take or leave. Mm -hmm. I think the opening's quite fun. <laughs> oh yeah, well, it's your typical standard 70s robot anime opening, where they talk about how awesome the robot is, and they just beat you over the head with the show's title. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, it is, it is za, za, za. Yeah, like it's uh, nothing but zaz. Uh, lots of lots of pizza here. You will be walking around the house singing za, 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 over and over again. Oh yeah, it is an absolute earworm. I have a, I have a friend who um, had, a, had a child fairly recently, and their uh, daughter, when they were watching a little bit of Zambot 3, would, um, whenever their daughter was around, they would just kind of like bop to the the theme music uh get into it it's uh children love it very small babies <laughs> love the zambot 3 opening well that was sort of the target audience for this sort of show although watching zambot 3 with your children why would you do that they're, they're, they're like small enough that they at the time that they wouldn't really understand at all what's going on like like that kind of young sort of thing and it's all in japanese like like I, know, I also know that person like recreationally listened to that particular opening a little bit because it was uh, good workout music from my understanding. So uh, pr probably in that context too. <laughs> hey, 70s robot anime openings are always a bop. I can sing so many of it from memory, but that's because the melodies aren't too complex where you ultimately lose track of what is being said phonetically. Like, I have a hard time remembering the words to most modern anime openings in Japanese, but some of those old openings from the 60s, 70s, and even the 80s, love them. Those are easy for me to sing and to remember. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, particularly these, these stuff before they you know, transition into, like, proper pop songs, such as they are when they're more intrinsically tied to the material and they're just simple they're for for younger folks to be able to sing along to and remember and buy the little soundtrack cd or uh, not cd good lord uh, the little soundtrack single 
So now we move over to voice acting, and I'll just get this over with quick. Our main character, Kape, is voiced by Nobuyo Oyama. Now, she is only known for two things. She is the voice of Monokuma in Danganronpa, but the biggest thing that she is known for, she was the longtime voice of Doraemon. Wow. She voiced the character of Doraemon from 1979 all the way to 2005. She wasn't the first voice actress for Doraemon, as Kosei Tomita and Masako Nozawa came before her, but she was the one who served the longest. She voiced Doraemon for 26 years incredible yeah I, I was unfamiliar I, f I feel like seiyu sort of trivia is is one of my biggest weak points uh, but that is always so interesting uh, when when you get that particular crossover it tracks though um Dor doraemon can be a bit a bit shrieky a bit high-pitched sometimes keiko is voiced by yoshiko matsuo the only significant credit of hers i could find is that she's the voice of keropi for sanrio Uchuta, meanwhile, actually has a pretty big name behind him, and that is Katsuji Mori. And Katsuji Mori was a big name throughout the 60s, 70s, and even 80s. Ken the Eagle in Gachaman, Go Mifune in Mach Go Go Go, or Speed Racer as we know it here in America, Naoto Date in the original Tiger Mask, Seiji Hayami in Cutie Honey, Maximilian Robespierre in The Rose of Versailles, Nephrite in Sailor Moon, Garma Zabi in Gundam, and Wolfgang Mittermeier in Legend of the Galactic Heroes. Ooh, I do, I do like that um, Gundam connection too, because uh, the hair, the hairstyle um, of all things is kind of similar between uh, Uchuta and Garma, and he, he's good. He's very good at playing dandies. Speaking of Gundam connections. Kozuki, the civilian that we follow the most in this series, is voiced by Toshio Furukawa, who would go on to play Kai Shiden in Gundam, along with being Piccolo in Dragon Ball Z, Ataru in Urusei Yatsura, Portgas D. Ace in One Piece, Shin in Fist of the North Star, and Leon McNichol in Bubblegum Crisis, among many, many others. The last voice actor that I'm going to talk about is Ichiro Nagai as the grandpa character, Hei Zaimon. We previously heard him as Captain Dice in Future Boy Conan. He's Dr. Sato in Space Battleship Yamato, Degwin Zabi in Gundam, and Hapasai in Ranma 1 Half. There are a couple of other voice actors. It's just those were the ones I wanted to focus on. Uh, the only other voice actor that I would like to... Uh... Uh, chip in was uh, Toyoko Takechi, the uh, the voice of the grandmother of the Jin clan, um, particularly because Tomino um, noted that he really enjoyed working with her. Uh, and then apparently she was very bad at doing the uh, voice sync when they were recording, uh, but that kind of informed um, Tomino's later sort of devil may care attitude towards uh, lip sync uh, in particular, um, and just sort of allowing actors to act without needing to quite so neatly adhere to the uh, actual animation. So just sort of significant um, in how it will later inform his uh, style of direction for his acting talent. 
Japanese seiyu tend to be rather lackadaisical with their lip syncing. Like, if you watch certain anime and listen to the voice acting versus how the mouths are moving, you will never not notice it. Oh yeah, absolutely. And uh, that, that is sort of, I guess, for the audience, uh, touching on sort of a technical point, that's sort of an animation thing in that um, in Japan, that's why they do just standard lip flaps. They don't do like uh, different uh, lip movements for different um, sounds that are being made because they just do standard lip flaps. And then in anime, a lot of the audio, um, a lot of the dialogue is recorded post-sync after the animation has already been completed. So they're sort of dubbing it the same way, you know, um, Americans would with already completed materials, as opposed to in American animation where that uh, vocal soundtrack is created first and then animated too. So I think that'll do it for voice acting. Let's move on to the primetime discussion about the show. And to circle back to what I said at the beginning... People often cite Zambot 3 as the show that would inspire Gundam. And I would say yes, Tomino took what he learned on Zambot 3 and put it into Gundam, but I don't think it's entirely fair to say that Zambot 3 is a proto-Gundam, nor do I like to say that it's, and I'm really starting to hate this word, a deconstruction of Super Robots. It feels more like it's Tamino putting his own spin on the genre. I think that's completely fair. Um, I think a lot of things are, are described as deconstructions when they're more... If anything, it's, it's a subversion of audience expectations, really, which... A decon that is not a deconstruction. A deconstruction is a bit more involved than just uh, doing a thing that is le not expected um, and playing with a, a novel sort of conceit, which I think Sandbot 3 broadly does quite well. And, and I also agree in the sense, um, like, like the problem with saying it's a proto-Gundam is, like, you can say anything's a proto-anything with Romano. I think, I think it's exploring a lot of ideas that will go into Gundam, but I don't think it is necessarily just purely a prototype for Gundam. There's a lot of stuff that, you know, obviously he will explore in Gundam. It's a, it's a bit more serialized than your standard sort of super robot affair um, in terms of episodes kind of flowing one into the other. Uh, obviously, you know, the plight of refugees fleeing from uh, a disaster will, will factor heavily into the opening of uh, War Well Throughout of Mobile Suit Gundam, um, only in the, that particular case the, the refugees are our heroes. And there's, you know, myriad other idiosyncrasies and little things that will obviously go back, come back in Gundam and, and kind of Zeta Gundam. This show has a, has a very Zeta Gundam sort of finale. I, I don't think it would be necessarily totally accurate um, to describe it as a prototype for Mobile Suit Gundam. It's kind of like saying about how Star Trek or Lost in Space was the inspiration for Star Wars. Yeah, it was sort of the first major science fiction show on syndicated television, but it's also completely false to say that Star Trek begets Star Wars, or that, to use an anime comparison, that Gunbuster is a proto-Evangelion, simply because both were directed by Hideaki Anno. Yeah, yeah, I think that's completely fair. Uh, or even something which, um, this is this is more of a cell phone, this is more calling, me calling uh, Ethan personally out, saying something like, Ideon begat uh, Evangelion, you know, like, it's not it's not one-to-one -one at all. Like, there's there's clearly some, some reverence towards that material, and it's bar borrowing elements. Uh, but there there's so much, like, art is so frequently just a big soup of influences, 
Um, and, and Mobile Suit Gundam is very much that. Um, it, it's clearly pulling a lot from Zambot um, in a number of ways, but yeah, that is but one of many ingredients to make this delightful stew. And as we all know, Evangelion is just Hideaki Anno's Ultraman fanfic. Uh, yes, a, a little bit. Uh, the uh, Adventures of Ultra Devil Man, uh, such as it were. He's, he's pulling in a lot of stuff, but the, the Ultraman stuff is, is readily the most obvious. And that's not to say that Zambot 3 was also the first dark uh, super robot show. You had episodes of Mazinger Z and Getter Robo that dealt with darker themes or darker subject matter. Specifically the manga for Getter Robo, which is a lot darker than its anime counterpart. But Zambot yeah. 3 was the first to have overtly dark overtones. I won't spoil this episode of this show because I really suggest you go out and watch it for yourself to sort of throw away this notion that Super Robot Anime was all the same before Gundam came around. But the second episode of Voltus 5, when I watched that, the climax of that episode left my mouth agape thinking, no, they actually did go there. I am absolutely stunned they would do something like that for the for 1977 and it's kind of how i feel about zambot 3 although i think between the two voltus 5 is the better show to watch overall but in terms of its significance and themes i'd say zambot 3 is a little more important than voltus 5 yeah particularly when you're you're dealing with a sort of a, a auteur particularly when you're dealing with an auteur figure like yoshiyuki tamino I think, um, just, just because, unfortunately, uh, Nagahama didn't quite have that time to iterate on, uh, those ideas, uh, as much as Tomino did, sadly. But, but Tomino is such an omnipresent force, um, and sort of his, his vision for the direction of mecha anime, uh, will sort of set the course for it moving into the 80s in a lot of ways. And one concept that Tomino uses here is our heroes are kids not teenagers kids like preteens we're talking about other times when you have robot shows the main characters are like high school age your koji kabutos your tetsuya sarugis your ryoma nagares etc yeah and i think that's almost a quirk as much as anything i mean aside from the obvious tomino is for the children let, let that be uh firmly implanted here uh, Tomino believes that uh, the kids are wrong and adults, uh, broadly speaking, uh, suck and are bad. But I, I do feel like the, the fact that the heroes in this are such young children is a conceit of, um, you know, the, the idea that you're making a show where it's about a family of mecha pilots. And then uh, Tomino decides that's going to be the one that he makes um, remarkably grim uh, for the period, <laughs> of course. But certainly, I think that just uh, better illustrates the larger point that uh, Tomino is trying to get at here uh, with his heroes being, um, you know, young children who were uh, forced into this war, uh, raised from birth ostensibly to be soldiers. And that brings us to sort of our main hero, Kape, and I have mixed feelings about him. On one hand, I see what Tomino is doing, and I like it. Kape has that sort of childish naivete this defiant i won't do what you tell me you're a grown-up i don't have to listen to you attitude but at points and i really hate to insult nobuyo oyama 
for her voice acting, but he can get a little grating at points. But I, I, I agree. Yeah, I, the vocal performance. I get the feeling, though, that this was intentional on Tamino's behalf. Yeah, I, I think it is a core part of the character. Um, and unlike a lot of sort of uh, some mecha shows, or well, some super robot shows, particularly of the day, can have uh, sort of stagnant casts uh, due to the lack of uh, serialization. Obviously, Voltas and that sort of thing are going to... You're going to see uh, progress on that front uh, in a lot of ways. But the Capet, what is nice about him is that uh, he is uh, obnoxious and grating and frustrating, but uh, you could do get to see him develop a bit as the show goes on, um, particularly uh, in the aftermath of episode 18 um, with uh, the death of Aki. And I, I think that really comes to this wonderful head in the final episode when uh, it's uh, Capet who's uh, shouting at Uchuta and Keiko when they're uh, engaging in their final assault on the Bandok to stop, don't just go rushing in. I, I think that's really ingenious writing, and I, I only really appreciated it on this last rewatch. Contrast him, though, with his two other counterparts. We have Keiko, who is the girl, and Uchuta, my favorite of the three, because Uchuta, if this is supposed to be the Getter team, then he's the Jin Hayato of the team. He's the cool, collected one. Confident, reassuring, he's the most mature of the three. Yeah, I think that's completely fair. Um, I, I, as this was alluded to uh, previously, while both uh, Keiko and Uchuta get sort of focus episodes, it, it is unfortunate, perhaps, that they really don't get much characterization compared to Capay, who is, is really the protagonist of this, this program. Uh, but what we do see of them, they are quite likable. Um, I think they're both a lot of fun. Keiko, in particular, gets sort of shoot, short shrift, uh, whereas Uchuta is allowed to bicker with um, Capay a bit more. Um, and kind of be a uh, teasing, cool uh, figure who gets to goad Capet into be doing kind of silly stuff every once in a while. Um, I think he's really good. I, th I think his character design, as much as anything, because he does really uh, toe that line. He's got the Bishonen haircut, but also he looks like a big goober with his kind of oversized mouth. I, I really like the designs of the, the main trio here in general, but Uchuta in particular stands out as a very distinct uh, design that's really well-suited to animation. There is very much that sort of Leiji Matsumoto influence to the character mm -hmm. designs, especially like those little potato heads, shall we say. Absolutely. Yeah, you get that um, in some, you know, some of the other children characters, but um, like, yeah, the, the various, uh, this particular group of young orphan children aboard the main ship uh, who aren't orphans, uh, at least at the start of the show and in Th th things happen. I guess they are technically orphans, but they're, they're down a pair in each. Of course, the other thing about Zambot 3 that makes it so unique is that the kids aren't being commanded by any specific military organization. They're being commanded by their family. And we have a family crew for this one. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, it is. It is sort of a different dynamic obviously you have like you know the the father figure creates the robot i mean that's that's a thing that we've seen or well specifically you know grandpa is responsible for the robot um which you see in uh, all the way back in mazinger but it is a, v a very different uh sort of uh larger dynamic um you know you never uh in like great mazinger obviously the father figure uh professor Subaraya, is uh, like a distant sort of uh, racer x figure uh, in that show. In this, uh, Grandpa is a portly old man, um, even different from, like, uh, the likes of uh, Amuro's father in Gundam and that sort of thing, where he is allowed to be more expressive and silly 
and it does make the show as a whole uh, stand apart uh, again from its contemporaries, even Voltes, which is very you know sort of familiarly uh, oriented in a lot of ways. Um, they, it does feel like they're you know, they are they are part of a larger sort of military structure rather than a group of ragtag uh, you know ancestors of refugees um, constantly getting in little spats with uh, the uh, militaries on Earth, sort of, again, reflecting um, Mobile Suit Gundam uh, and the relationship between the White Base crew and the Federation, uh, but also, you know, in Edeon, the relationship between the solo ship crew and, and Earth as they, they approach it. And because they're um, not of this Earth, they're from Gaizok, I believe the name of the planet is, right? Uh, uh, the planet is uh, from... Uh, the planet is Beale. Um, ah, okay. It, it's also the name of the bases that they command, which th th that's something else that we wanted. I should have pointed out during the animation segment. They have their own proto white base called the Beale ships, and they combine because, of course, they do. Yeah, they uh, they have a lot of fun with that too. I like that they don't stay uh, like merged throughout, and you can kind of use the like period of time after the King Beale first separates, um, and they're all sort of their own bits um, to kind of keep on top of things the idea of having separate bases but also uh that they're they're doing maintenance on them and that the kids are separated from their family crops up a little bit um well aside from capay who's but they're all on the main sort of beal one together with the zambot uh but you know uchuta and keiko are distant from their parents which uh is a fun way to sort of play with the idea of having a combining ship uh that needs to be maintained by a very small number of people and now we sort of, though, get into the minutiae of the story, though, because even though the pe even though the family from Beale are here to save the Earth, they are not exactly well-liked by the people of Earth. One of the big things that Tomino did with this series was that he was watching all these super robot shows and, like, how they were having battles in forests or at the sea or by crucial infrastructure... And he just looks at it and he goes, this isn't realistic at all. If this was real, those people would be furious that these bots are wrecking their property and killing people accidentally. So you know what? I'm going to make a robot show that does that. A robot show that is filled with collateral damage and the consequences of war. And it works. It's effective. This is why I say Zambot 3 is is at least worth a watch because no super robot shows weren't all just tokusatsu monster of the week things on occasion you get episodes even whole plot points that deal with things like collateral damage and refugees and how the people react to a robot that is meant to help them but ends up causing more harm than good yeah i think in particular uh what makes Zambot so special is that it, it very much adheres to that. Um, like a lot of those other shows, um, because of the nature of the programming at the time, uh, they weren't uh, terribly serialized. They didn't continue on from episode to episode. And, and Zambot, you know, uh, it has its deficiencies in that, that way. But uh, it, it never really shies away from that, that um, all awful things are happening to people. Uh, perhaps places more emphasis on that, that aspect uh, in its... Uh, first two-thirds, just about. Um, but it is still something that is omnipresent um, up till the, the very final episodes on Earth. And that brings us to my favorite character in the show, and that's Kozuki, who is the one that we're going to be following the most in terms of how these 
battles are affecting him because Kozuki to me has the biggest character arc in the entire show. Yeah, I think that's completely fair. Um, he, he, in that way, he does, uh, in a lot of aspects, uh, mirror um, Akai, Kaishiden, um, in terms of have, having the, the probably the larger character arc, even when compared to the protagonist. He, like others, starts off by hating Zambot 3 because it destroyed his home. It separated him from his family. He wants no part in this. But after meeting the Jin family and seeing what they do and what they put themselves through, he suddenly realizes just how much of a necessary evil Zambot 3 is to the people of Earth. Because without it, he would be dead. Yeah, I think absolutely. And particularly those early episodes when he's, he's being real bastard about it. Um, and, you know, he sneaks in or storms really the beale ship and starts smashing up computers um and you have that wonderful scene of him uh doing like a warning shot at hanae and uh she just does what did you just do and she just walks right up to him and tears the gun out of his hand and slaps him uh, which is really just one of my favorite moments in the show <laughs> so i just wanted an excuse to point that out uh, but you go from that from him being treated like a child to him sort of as a refugee taking on this parental role um it's sort of in you know you know, parallels to Voltes V when he sort of leads a uh, prison revolt, not a, you know, lower class sort of serfdom revolt, but aboard the uh, Geizok uh, ship, uh, the Bandok. Uh, you, you get a lot of... He goes through a lot <laughs> throughout the show. Um, ultimately, maybe not quite so much as Kepe. <laughs> Poor Kepe. But um, he changes quite a bit, um, and, I'm, and I'm happy. I'm happy he gets the happy ending at the very end, where it turns out his sister was alive the whole time. The Bandok, by the way, is a giant Dogu statue with the body of a centaur. Speaking of the Bandok, I want to talk about our villain for the show, and probably the one that has the most Tomino name of them all, Killer the Butcher. To put it simply... I love this guy. Uh, he's delightful. I, I think, in particular, on, on paper, it shouldn't work having this really absurd, over-the-top kind of uh, villain in your more grounded super robot show, but I, I really think it enhances it, just making a complete bastard and a gigantic man-child. Because he talks like this, like, like um, how is it? He always says his name, uh, sort of, like, very effetely, like, Kira de Bucha! And Kira he has Zabucha! Yeah, Kira Zabucha! And it's, it, like, it's fun! You want to say it with him! It's so delightful! Um, and he's just, he's always doing the stupidest shit, like, just playing billiards, or, oh. um, Elvis impersonating. Uh, he has, he has portraits of Elvis on his wall. He is such a silly, yet so menacing villain. He feels like he's a low-rent version of Briking Boss from Kashan because Briking Boss was this very serious villain with that imposing Kenji Utsumi voice. Yet as the show went along, like you'd see him doing all sorts of silly things, painting a picture, taking a bath, tearing a page out of a children's book and eating it. Yeah, and absolutely, I think um, Killer the Butcher is uh, is that. Um, but I think the the fact that he's that like nonstop really it, it does adds to something to just see this someone taking such delight in being so 
like horrible in like beyond the like oh i'm going to de deploy the latest robot it's uh ooh, i'm going to murder people en masse and take advantage of human kindness everything about him uh so perfectly sort of juxtaposes the seriousness of the situation um in a way that works really well and i don't think um would work nearly as it wouldn't work yeah nearly as well if it was a situation like um like the sort of bishonen villains that you got in tato nagahama's robot robot stuff uh or uh, even raiden i think he's he's really the perfect villain for this sort of exploratory work that uh, tomino is doing and it makes sense that he's a villain because both his name and his design are taken from a real-life wrestling heel in and out of the ring, Abdullah the Butcher. In case you aren't aware of this, Ethan, Abdullah the Butcher was a wrestler who, he wasn't really good at selling, and he wasn't exactly a technical wizard in the ring like Jack Briscoe or Harley Race, but he was really good at making people bleed. Like, he was sort of the man who popularized the use of gratuitous blood in wrestling. Uh, yeah, I guess that makes a particular sense for um, for this villain. And I, I certainly noted the physical uh, similarity, but I'm sure you, you can speak to the larger like way his characterization as a, as a wrestler might have informed... Uh, killer the butchers in this work uh as me a complete layperson to to wrestling i admit well you also need to know that abdullah the butcher was huge in japan around this time like he was having some big sellout matches against the likes of antonio inoki giant baba later on the likes of jumbo saruda and tatsumi fujinami like abby was an icon in japan he had a guest star in a tokusatsu show and i am so pissed that i can't find this clip obviously like he is dubbed over he's not playing himself actually if you hear abdullah the butcher talk you can see why killer the butcher sounds the way he does because abby actually has this sort of this shockingly high-pitched voice considering how huge he is Killer the Butcher, in addition to just being a great villain, is also Tomino playing off of current trends at the time. Abdullah the Butcher is selling out the likes of Sumo Hall and the Nippon Budokan. Why not have a villain that looks just like him so that you can draw some extra eyeballs to the product? Yeah, that's such a really cool connection, too, for this villain, uh, villainous character I've always liked for the longest time, and then learning a bit more about um, Abdullah, sort of his, his inspiration point is so fun. Because he does, he has such that... That real performative kind of quality that a lot of wrestlers do, um, and more the specifics from Abdullah is really fascinating. Thankfully, though, he doesn't give anybody hepatitis C, although <laughs> uh, he does something a lot worse, and this kind of plays into the most notorious part of Zambot 3. Around episode 16, we are introduced to the Human Bomb story arc. For those who have never seen this, Killer the Butcher decided that he's tired of just sending monsters down to Earth, decides that he is going to start kidnapping humans and implanting them with bombs. And not just like simple bombs that'll like kill three or four people. We're talking explosives that could level whole buildings. And these human bombs are marked with stars upon thars, and 
the bombs have no detonation point. They basically go off at random. Effectively, Killer the Butcher is committing acts of genocide. Yeah, um, these, it's sort of an interesting pull because it's, it's ostensibly a t sort of terrorism, which, you know, I mean, I guess giant robots destroying cities are, are terrorism, but, um, like, the most cruel sort of kind of, uh, terrorism, like, uh, literally when, um, one of the earlier episodes in the Human Bomb arc, or the second episode in the Human Bomb arc, I guess, really, we see that, uh, the Gaizok minions are, are disguising themselves as, uh, humans, that have rescued people like they try to there's a boat that needs a doctor um and they're sending a doctor onto the boat that they've implanted with a bomb uh they're they're doing just the most malicious possible things they could do you know taking these people and sent returning them home uh just to you know kill their loved ones ostensibly um in these these hideous acts of violence um and it's it's like existentially terrifying just really again the kind of stuff that kind of pushes it beyond a lot of its uh contemporaries um, because, you know, like Voltas V and uh, similar works, they obviously explore heavy themes and that sort of thing in uh, particular episodes, but I, I don't think they would quite so, like, they might do a storyline like this for a one-off episode, but they wouldn't quite magnify the, like, terror of it. They wouldn't have a child screaming for his mother and father, uh, a child who we've seen as a side character in several episodes, before he dies, before he explodes and k kills the crowd of people around him. It's It's genuinely really effective um and yeah definitely one of the things that the show is best remembered for and for good reason i think tomino said the reason why he made all these decisions was simply because he believed that convenient wars without death don't exist and this is taking it to its most extreme level the one clip and i i don't feel bad with spoiling this show because the show is well over 40 years old at this point. It's going to be 46 years old today, so there's no shame in spoiling a 46-year-old show. There's a scene where a kid is turned into a human bomb and explodes. That's the sort of level Tomino was at with this show. This there's a scene where kids, like multiple children, <laughs> this happens to poor Aki on top of the, the member of Kazuki's gang. Uh, who blows up, like, multiple children are um, sacrificed on screen to this. On screen child deaths. Tomino was not screwing around when he made this. And yet he said that Zambot 3 has no memorable episodes. Tomino was indifferent to this whole project. And I get where he's coming from. I do feel the first half of Zambot 3 is kind of just okay. But once you get to the human bomb arc, that's when things get really, really good. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah, I, I find that um, uh, Yoshiyuki Tamino is the most unreliable narrator about uh, the life and works of Yoshiyuki Tamino. So I, I wonder if this is actually how he feels about Zambot, if he's just being uh, contrarian for the sake of it. Who knows? The man's an enigma, and we love him for it. To use a timely reference, when it comes to his interviews, Yoshiyuki Tomino is the real-world equivalent of Prospera Mercury. Uh, yeah. Yeah, there are a lot of parallels there. It sort of leads into the big finale, where you have this big raid on the Bandock, and that's where Tomino really turns the screws so hard that he practically breaks the structure of our characters because 
This was the first real super robot anime where everybody dies. And we're not just talking like simple side characters either. By the end of it, Kape is the only one who's still alive. Yeah, um, of the the sort of really prominent characters, um, which which are admittedly mostly the men in the show, um, the the women and children, uh, Tomino spares. Uh, well, not all the children, uh, but the the children what don't pilot a big robot. Um, he spares in this particular instance, but yeah, it's a, it's a bloodbath. In the words of Van Halen, women and children first. Yeah, he's got, he's got to put people in pods somehow. He's been doing that since the, the first episode of Astro Boy, putting people in, in little tubes and blasting them out into space. And it sort of ends on this beautifully sour note where our heroes do win the day, but at what cost? Because... Kape began the series as a kid with a loving family and friends. He ends the show being basically alone. That is the thing. Like, it's a very fine point is put onto it because it's when, you know, he, st he still has his mother and he still has um, Michi and Kosuki. Uh, but uh, when he's he's laying there on the beach after, after the Zambo Ace has crash landed, after I believe Beale the First. Uh, has pulled a um, a Char's counterattack in in stopping the uh, Axis drop that is the Bandock's uh, hulking remains with a Capet still in it. Uh, but as he as he's laying there, half conscious, sobbing, he's he's asking his for his he's telling his dad how cold he is. It's it's really like effective di dialogue writing, particularly from someone who is uh, well known for being a bit idiosyncratic uh, in his dialogue. And it's uh, just like a straight-up gut punch, especially after uh, following on the the death of his father, Gengoro, in episode twenty-two, which is one of the like one of the best death scenes in anime, in in my opinion. It's so so good because uh, it's kind of an animation and everything. And like I, I can just gush about this finale because I think that that is the reason that for the longest time it was one of my it was basically yes, just my my favorite Tomino anime like television series. It has such a tight like perfect ending for what it is i think the ending really does make it worth it i am not ashamed to say that i shed a tear when watching this ending and so does the robot the one little quirk about the animation as limited as it is is that the zambo ace is a lot more expressive than your average super robot at the time it has a human face Absolutely, yeah. That's that's something they're really gonna play with in Daitarn, because uh, Daitarn uh, famously sort of has a real, real deal human face, uh, or well, human robot face. It, it got lips, <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, the Zambo Ace is, is a lot more able to be expressive than uh, the, the Zambot with its sort of closed faceplate, a la the Gundam. Uh, and and this finale, uh, this famous shot, probably the shot of the show. Um, uh, when I did a panel on Tomino, it, like, figuring out screenshots for the other um, pre-Gundam shows that I wanted to use was was a bit difficult. With Zambot, it's like, nope, crying robot right there. It's such a great shot. It looks gorgeous. Uh, and it's just the, the whole show in a nutshell. It's, it's a robot. It'll make you cry. The shot of Zambot 3 crying, which I'm using as the thumbnail for this episode, it's pretty much become iconic among mecha fans 
something that to me sums up what the anime is in one screen cap mm-hmm. Zambot 3 is one but at what cost and I think the ending alone is worth it oh absolutely yeah I think that um, that finale is really truly perfect uh, in, in my my book um, if you like like it feels like in many ways um, I do consider that last last track on some there's a lot of Zeta Gundam elements in there. Um, if you're a particularly big Zeta Gundam head, uh, a bunch of people die. Um, the main character's love interest dies. I, yeah, I just I can't think of a perfect sort of three episode finale uh, to like any other Tomonosha. I, I love. I, I don't know. I, I shouldn't say that, but for me, it's just considering like all the historical factors, how unique of a finale it is particularly for the time i i can't help but love it especially with the canada animation on the second to last episode um and and that very final episode has a has a good showing for the animation i think everything looks uh pretty on model it still does some kind of experimental stuff um overall as, as someone who does sort of um glom on to like interesting visuals and that sort of thing and it's maybe a bit more forgiving to uh, its uh sometimes deficiencies I think the emotional core of this finale is so good, and I think the really the final third of the show in particular makes it all worth it, especially it being sort of pretty short for the day. What I am told, the reason why it was so short, because it's only 23 episodes. Now, for modern fans, that may not seem like too much, but back in these days, mecha anime ran for well over 30 episodes. The reason that I got from that NHK Gundam documentary was that the toy company wasn't happy with the darker themes portrayed in Zambot 3, and they basically asked that they cut it short. Yeah, I've heard some conflicting reports on that. Um, uh, Clover shutting it down wouldn't be too surprising. I also know it was it was Clover's, one of the earliest time Clover's did like a toy tie-in kind of thing more directly for a series. So it, it, it could have been a mix of things, like being sort of unsure about how this would work out, so committing to a lower episode count. Um, but certainly, uh, Tomino himself has said that when they screened that final episode, the faces of everyone in the, like, all the business, all the suits in the room, their faces were just, like, pale white, um, which... Tomino may be exaggerating, he may be fibbing, but honestly, if I was a Japanese toy suit uh, in the late 70s watching the finale to Zambot 3 to this uh, delightful children's cartoon um, I was trying to get uh, produced, uh, I would probably be pretty mortified too. (laughs) So, before we give our final thoughts, I have to ask, would you recommend this series to a casual fan or somebody who is new to mecha i i don't think it hits as hard uh if you haven't if you don't at least have a little bit of experience with like 70s mecha stuff so i i I think it's like i wouldn't say like advanced level but like intermediate like if you've sort of acclimated to 70s mecha animation you have sort of a handle on the conventions of it then seeing those conventions sort of turned on their head and played with in Zambot 3 is a lot more satisfying. As an introduction, I don't think it's perfect. Um, I think if you're someone who likes the original Mobile Suit Gundam, like 1979 
Gundam. Uh, I, I would recommend it on that point, just to kind of see those elements sort of percolating, even if you aren't quite as familiar with older mecha stuff. But I think, uh, like, seeing Gundam and being a little familiar with early mecha stuff, uh, like Mazinger, uh, get, puts you in, like, the, the perfect mindset. Um, so I, I wouldn't recommend it as, like, a first-timers kind of show, um, but I would say that it's definitely one you will want to watch on that journey. Yeah, that's pretty much what I feel about it. I would say, if you're going to watch Zambot 3... I suggest you get some easy super robot shows out of the way. Obviously, the big one being Gurren Lagan. It's not really Mecha, it's more Tokusatsu, but both Gridman and Dyna Xenon, if you like Gurren Lagan. Then go to stuff like Gaugaigar, some of the Gonagai stuff from the 90s and early 2000s, before getting to Zambot 3. Get a good feel for what super robots are all about before going to Zambot 3. Hell, I would recommend both Combattler and Voltus before I would recommend Zambot 3. That's not to say that Zambot 3 is bad, it's just it can be a little rough to newcomers. Maybe the first core. Maybe the first core of Combattler, or the first two cores of Combattler I would recommend. Um, the, sec- the second one you can, you should watch, um, but there's a decline there. Um, I, I, I say that with love. I really do enjoy Combattler. I just think that first half is r- uh, real good, um, in particular. But I, th- I think that's completely fair. Like, especially, yeah, watching Combattler um, or any of the robot romance shows, uh, that kind of gives you a feeling of uh, what it was, quote-unquote, up against. You know, what was its its real peer in this space. Um, and also, like, not giving you, like, a, like, an easy one. Like, look at how much better Zambot is. It's because those shows are, you know, very much still innovating um, in terms of, you know, introducing, like, shoujo themes and that sort of thing into the larger work. But, you know, Zambot is going on a completely different path. And uh, I think um, that just having that appreciation for it, especially to, um, as has been mentioned, Zambot's of pretty easy sell just because it's the shortest one of these guys i think that's actually a big part of why i did watch it when i i did initially was because it was far and away um pretty much one of very shortest super robot shows of its day even and it i'm fairly certain it is the shortest tomino television series in his catalog so so that at least does make it more approachable uh in uh some ways like if this was a full-on uh, like like Daitarn. Daitarn is 40 episodes, uh, and it's fun. I like it, but it's a harder sell. Of course, after Zambot 3, Tomino would go on to do Daitarn, which I've only seen clips of, but it looks insane. I uh, Briefly discussing Daitarn, um, just because I, I do like it a lot. Uh, it's It's got a lot going on in it um there's uh there's an episode with animation direction by uh, yaz uh, who otherwise didn't work on the project but it's it's great there's a it's like a proto giant gorg um which is really cool daitarn 3 is incredible because it's mostly goofy fun times and then the very ending hits you and it's the biggest bummer in the world and not like a zambot 3 kind of bummer um like it like it feels like an artistic intent kind of bummer like like the director is just tired um like it's a really good finale to be clear i love the last episode of daitarn 3 uh, but it is like being hit by a greyhound bus uh compared to the tone of the rest of the series it's really uh, a remarkably fun show overall and then that ending Woo. i but i do i do recommend it too just like watch an episode a day don't burn yourself out on it so do we have any final thoughts on zambot 3 uh it's real good uh it's a really incredible show like i, I can talk about it forever um ooh, uh i love the, the fact that the ion gun and the way it hooks up to zambot 3 
uh, is basically the same as the Ideon gun in Ideon. Uh, I wanted to tag that in there somewhere, but um, as a whole, I can talk about Zambot 3 for far too long and have done so on this podcast. We have been recording for almost two hours. Hell yeah. Uh, it's a really remarkable show. It has its problems. It has its its deficiencies. But I, I think uh, those Kanada those episodes, the layouts by Tomino, um, the, the wonderful design work by Yaz... Um, there's there's just so much to love here, um, and I think it's um, a really remarkable show that I really loved the first time I saw it, um, and getting to revisit it for your show uh, was such a delight, and I'm very happy you invited me on to discuss it. I really appreciate it. Hey, I'm glad to have you on. My final thoughts are this. While I wouldn't recommend Zambot 3 to a casual fan, If you are into mecha anime and want to see just how the genre has changed over the years, or want to watch a work that sort of helped the genre grow and mature, or explore new territory that wasn't thought of previously, I would say give Zambot 3 a go. I mentioned previously though, get some easier super robot anime out of the way before you go into Zambot 3, but other than that, yeah, I'd say it's a pretty good show. Unfortunately, though, Zambot 3 never got a release stateside, so you're gonna have to watch this one by the aforementioned other means. It is all available on YouTube, albeit not in the best quality, but it did get a beady release, so seek that out if you can on the high seas of the internet. I do want to stress this, though, because far too many people on Anna Twitter and especially Anatube, their timeline for mecha anime goes like this. Tetsujin 28, maybe, and this is a big maybe, Mazinger Z, Gundam, Evangelion, Code Geass, Gurren Lagann, and, God help you, Darling in the Franks. There's no real in-between for any of them. For them, they're like, these are the things that changed the mecha genre. To me, Zambot 3 is one of the most important Super Robot shows of the decade. It showed that Super Robot shows don't always have to be the good guys win at the end of every episode. Absolutely. Yeah, I think it's instructional in its way of how uh, this is very much a steady evolution over time. um, And that there are big steps that are being made. Um, of course, then you can link them to larger cultural factors, like the rise in popularity of space opera um, that comes in with Gundam and that sort of thing. Um, It's good to take a holistic view uh, to these sorts of things um, and try not to just think about it in terms of landmark, 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 um, and and appreciate how things change over time and how different artists do different things and uh, the the larger through line. It gives you a, a fuller understanding of things. And, and that's good. It's good and cool to uh, understand things better. This is why I am so vocal about watching anime made before 1995. It gives you a greater appreciation for what we have now. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So, with all that said, Ethan, where can people find you on social media? Yeah, um, you can find me at sundown underscore McMoon on uh, Twitter, uh, Instagram, if you want to see some of my art. And if you would like to find me on uh, all the Bomb Squad material uh, that we do, um, we're at Bomb Squad Prods on uh, Twitter. Um, if you just 
look us up on YouTube. It's Bomb Squad Productions. We have playlists dedicated to cartoons or animation stuff um, that that I'm usually on <laughs> with the anime stuff, basically always. Um, and uh, if you like to hear me, if you liked hearing me talk about giant robots in particular, I've guested on a few episodes of um, the show Giant Robot FM, which is a great little show that you should definitely check out if you enjoy uh, podcasts about anime, which I suspect you do, uh, based on the fact that you're listening to this. But uh, that's that's pretty much the long and short of it. And uh, thank you again so much, Nate, for having me on for this episode on Zambot 3. No problem, man. If you enjoyed this episode, please give us a like, subscribe, leave a review, subscribe to us on Spotify, SoundCloud, Podbean, Apple and Google Podcasts, any place you get your podcasts from. And you can find me on social media, on Twitter and Facebook, at OtakuNateShow. You can find me on Instagram, at NateTendoWee, where I'm posting photos of myself at sporting events or watching hockey while building plastic model kits. I am currently in the middle of assembling a real-grade Galgaigar and hopefully to get the Goldie Mark to go with that. Next time on the Otaku Nate Show, we go from the crazy futuristic world of super robots to the dark and dank world of the low-budget OAV for a rather notorious entry. To some, it is the worst anime ever made. To others, it's one of the most awesome things ever made. For others, it's both. Which of these three is it? Well, you'll find out where we stand next time when we answer the call and suit up for Kazuo Koike's Mad Bull 34. So until then, this is Otaku Nate. This is Ethan Hawker. And we're signing off and saying, Zambot 3 Combination In! (laughs) 